Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast. Perhaps you've heard of them. Uh, I don't know how you would be listening to this if you hadn't. And we uh, read things. Perhaps you've heard of reading. Uh, It's entirely possible that you're listening to this without having heard of reading, Mm, but unlikely. Very unlikely. If you haven't heard of reading, then stop the podcast and learn about it. Go to your local library to learn more about reading. Anyway, so what we read for this episode was a novella called Billy Bud Sailor. There's a comma in between Bud and Sailor. And it was written by Herman Melville. The whole novel, not just the comma. But I'm sure he wrote the comma, too? Well, there's a chance that he may or may not have written the comma. Because this novella actually has a backstory that's kind of like a literary mystery. This was his last work, right? And it was published posthumously. Yeah, he died in 1891. And this novella, the first iteration of this novel, was published in 1924. He died when? When did he die? 1891. Okay. And this was published when? 1924. That's a pretty... That's a lot of time. So so what happened was uh, Neville, Melville, was working on this novel. He had taken a break from writing long-form fiction. He wrote only poetry for like 30 years, right? Yes. So he was working on this novel on and off for five years before he passed away. Well, this was originally a poem, right? The exactly. Poem that appears. At, I believe that it's, it was originally the just the poem that appears at the end of the novella. Spoiler alert: There's a poem at the end of this novella. Yeah. So it's, it's like um, there's a monster at the end of this book, <laughs> <laughs> but it, the monster is poetry. Episode title. So what happened was um, Melville passed away. Melville passed away, and his wife, going through his papers, came across what she believed was this fully finished handwritten manuscript and she herself set upon herself to edit this manuscript to prepare for publication because apparently she had worked with him doing rewrites and edits and, and helping him along the way with a lot of his other published works she got so bogged down in the notes and the sort of ideas that Melville had put around the novel that she wasn't able to finish it to the way that she thought that he would have wanted it done So she put it away for 20 to 25 years. And then a literary scholar who was doing a biography of Melville came across the the manuscript that at that point was written by Melville and had at certain points been rewritten and overwritten by his wife. And unbeknownst to him, she he took the edits that the wife had made thought they were Melville's and published this not this novel novella. So as time goes on and other scholars start to look at the original handwritten manuscript, they realize that there were key points that had been changed by Melville's wife. So in the 1960s, using, I guess they called it a genetic manuscript. So wife's name is Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And the scholar was Raymond M. Weaver. Right. So but in the 60s, after doing more kind of like handwriting analysis and more technical analysis of the work, they had were able to strip out the changes that Melville's wife, Elizabeth, had made. And then they published a second version of this novella, which they feel is more truthful to the slant that 
Melville was going for. Which one did we read? I think we read the 1964 edition. Let me check. 1962. So we read the... Yeah, and it's called the New Reading Text or the Corrected Version. And it's by G. Thomas Tansel is the editor of the Corrected Version. Okay, cool. So, uh, most likely people come across the first version from 1924 because that's easy accessible in the public domain. So, there's kind of slight variations. It's not like a completely different text, but there are some slight variants in the different works. That's how the book came to be. So, I guess we should probably talk about what happens in it, which, to be honest, is not actually a lot. I mean, I think I could run down the quote-unquote plot of this story in, like, record time. Well, before you get into the plot, let's, like, briefly talk about the concept of posthumous novels. And then what happens when a novelist dies in the middle of creating a work. Because there are some really famous texts out there that are published posthumously. I was thinking when I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about David Foster Wallace and the Pale King and how maybe a lot of what the author was going for might be lost when an editor takes over the remains of a creative process. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I think it's a tricky thing because depending on how much of the... uh, how much of the work is actually finished, it really, like, changes the the role of the editor. Like, it essentially, if, if it's just a manuscript that's never been submitted anywhere with notes, then it essentially adds an extra step to the editor's workload. Because normally, you know, a writer would still be refining their work right up until the point where they hand it to the editor, and that's where they come in. So you're never really going to know if uh, the... Unless the the version that was published was, like, something they had submitted to the editor just before they died or was, like, compiled and ready to send just before they died. You're never going to know how much of that the writer would have wanted to like cut out or expand or reorder before it ended up, you know, in front of the eyes of another person. And then there's also always the fact that even once the book gets to the editor, it's still a, you know, a continuing collaborative process where you're getting notes and you're deciding how you're going to execute those notes or if you're just going to ignore them. And so in, in a world where uh, the author had survived, to see the editing process of their manuscript, it's entirely possible that the book could have ended up completely different, even if the this condition that the manuscript is in when they died was, this is ready to go to my editor. So it's, it's I don't know, it's, a, it's always going to be like, a, there's always going to be a what if hanging over it, even if it feels like, you know, this is, was almost entirely completed or was entirely completed before they they kicked it. Do you think that Billy Budd is technically a finished novel? I don't know. I think it works just fine as a finished novel, but it's weird. I mean, it ends with these sort of three... We'll get to it, but, like, the book 
has one central dramatic event that happens, and then there are three chapters left. Right. And one chapter is just basically a footnote explaining how one of the central characters died. And then we have two different versions of how the outside world might have perceived that big dramatic event that takes up the, you know, fourth to last chapter. And that's very weird. Like, that's a weird structure for a book. And it makes me wonder if those maybe weren't last chapters and those were maybe those were just sketches of ideas or if that concept of like let's have uh the event of billy bud happen and then explore it like expand out and explore how the world perceives that it makes me wonder if he was going to do more of that because two seems like a weird number to do for that right but it but i guess it also makes sense thematically because it's like one is a newspaper Report And it's like, here's the official state story. One is a poem written by one of the sailors. And it's like, here's the sort of folkloric uh, version that exists within the sailor's culture. And here's the edited version that is seen fit to be read by people who exist outside of this fear of the sailors. And like, those make sense as reflections of each other. But uh, I definitely think if he had survived... He would have done more on this. I, I don't think this is finished. It feels close to finish, but I think there's ideas in this that are not fully, like, hammered out and polished in the way that if you go back and read Melville's other works, they're much more polished than this is. Yeah, because I was thinking a lot about the difference between sort of a found manuscript and a posthumous novel. And I was thinking a lot about... Um, Henry Miller and his, the last known work of Henry Miller, Moloch, Mm -hmm. which was a novel that he had written a fully fleshed out manuscript and then had given it to his wife and there was marital disputes and the manuscript was never published. And when it was published in the early 90s, it was a fully functioning novel. Henry Miller had written it and revised it and it was the complete format that he wanted. And then I was thinking a lot about, you know, this whole thing about when J.D. Salinger passed away and it was rumored that his family, that he had continued to keep writing and his family was sitting on a treasure trove of unpublished Salinger works. And then there was all this speculation and all of this sort of literary news buzz about the possibility that there could be multiple J.D. Salinger novels that had been unpublished. And then it turned out that most of what he had written was sort of these nebulous ideas like he had never actually finished a full functioning novel and it was decided that there was just too much confusion in his own papers that there was nothing there that could immediately be published because they were sort of his random thoughts and notes and fledgling attempts at writing different novels and there really wasn't that final work that they were hoping to find. Yeah, I think... um the Salinger thing, the the weird, like, hope and expectation people had for this, like, Salinger treasure trove after he died, I think speaks to, like, a fundamental misunderstanding of how writers work. I think Because it's so. like, he wouldn't, for as much as that dude was, like, a curm- curmudgeon and, like, uh, shied away from the spotlight, at least later on, he wouldn't have sat on a fully completed novel and not done anything with it. Um, To get a little weird for a second, not weird, but to get a little, like schmaltzy maybe for a second 
I think that like all all art carries with it the like you know it has its meaning that is being put into it by the person creating and read out of it by the person looking at it, but it all inherently carries a the same message somewhere in it, which is like I exist, I'm real, and I believe that someone might care. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't to make take the work of pulling the thing out of your brain and having it have to be imperfect because it has to be imperfect to exist in the imperfect world if you didn't believe that someone would care and want to see it if an artist is making work that they're never going to show anyone they're probably destroying that work right after they make it yeah and i I think that salinger seemed like he was more um he wasn't so much a process writer like some of the more successful mainstream writers you know, like there's always talk about Stephen King, how he, you know, writing is his full time job. He wakes up in the morning, he writes for a certain amount of hours, and then he's done his work. Someone like J.D. Salinger was kind of like that's like a thing with. I mean, not to like say that he had like some kind of mental illness, but what <laughs> drove J.D. Salinger to write was different than what drives someone like James Patterson to write. It's almost like to him, his writing is a release. Like, it's a creative outlet that he has to sort of purge his, like, his mind was, the way that his notes were arranged, Yeah, it was almost like his, he his thoughts were faster than his hand or typewriter could work, and he couldn't really sort of laser focus his, himself into making, you know, writing another novel. And there are novelists... I can't imagine what that, that's got completely alien to me. Imagine being a person like that. I can't. But I think it's like, you know, you look at like Truman Capote and when he talks about on writing, how the way that he works, he could not have been as successful if he didn't have a good editor. And I think that was the problem with J.D. Salinger. He He needed an editor. He needed sort of like a boss of his writing to sort of get him focused. And he didn't have that. And he isolated himself for so long. And he sort of went off in the wild and he didn't have anyone sort of hurting him, like giving him a deadline or pushing him to do something. So he sort of just sort of went on his own and meanders around. But then you have someone like, you know, like C.S. Lewis who worked sort of in the same way, but had an editor, had a deadline and was able to produce fully fleshed out novels because he had that sort of oversight that he would need. Yeah. And he had the power of God and anime on his side. Well, yes, that too. (laughs) But, I mean, it's interesting to think about, like, these sort of literary sort of side notes or footnotes in sort of the history of famous authors and things like that. Like, if no one had decided to write a biography of Herman Melville, this novel would not have come out. Because the family had no intention of publishing this novel. It was only after it was found that people were like, yes. I mean, was... The public clamoring for another Herman Melville novel? I mean, it was the 20s by then. I mean, it's I don't know if there were fashion. clamoring, but I mean, when did... I don't know the the history of the public conception of Melville, but like, at some point, Moby Dick became sort of like canonized as like the, the great American novel. Like, I'm sure people were really interested even by the 20s in a new Herman Melville novel, I'm sure that like it piqued some some serious public interest. I mean, it would be like you know, and even now, like if if they found a new uh, 
like a new Kurt Vonnegut novel, people would be fucking stoked. Right. Even though he's been dead for quite some time. I thought it was interesting when I was doing the research about this novel that one of the people that claimed that they loved this novel and this novel was so important to them was D.H. Lawrence. And I feel like there's really nothing in common between the works of D.H. Lawrence and Herman Melville, but for some reason D.H. Lawrence was, according to him, profoundly influenced by the works of Herman Melville. Hmm. Which I thought was interesting. I don't know. I'm not ter- honestly. I'm I'm gonna cop to not being terribly familiar with uh, the works of D. H. Lawrence, so I can't really comment on that. But doesn't wait? But how didn't? When did this book get published again? Finally, the first version was in 1924. But isn't that like D. H. Lawrence died in like 1930? Didn't he? He was still a, he. He was one of the the people that were proponents for having it published. Okay, so he had read it before it was published. Yes, probably. Okay. Because I was going to say, like, can't imagine it was that influential if he had, like, six years of it existing Yeah, but think about... I'm talking about Moby Dick. Oh. Oh, The the writer, Herman Melville, was important to D.H. Lawrence. Oh, I I thought you meant Billy Budd specifically. Okay. I mean, I could see... I could. The only reason I could think that D.H. Lawrence would like Billy Budd be, is because it has a lots of beautiful people in it, and mm-hmm. that's a thing that Herman Mel, that Herman Melville and D.H. Lawrence have in common. Yeah, they both write about attractive people. Mm-hmm. I do want to say one last thing. I did that whole like rigmarole where I was like, "Oh, it's never going to be the writer's vision because they're not there to shepherd it into existence. You don't know what changes they would make." That's also kind of true about humusly published novels because like at some point you just have to stop working and refine it and it's like like i was saying about dragging your work out of your brain and into the imperfect world like no work of art is ever the perfect complete vision of the creator so at some point i wonder if it's even useful to to be like oh well you know this one isn't the you know fully his vision because he was dead before it was published when it's like, well, yeah, but also his earlier works aren't his fully perfect vision because he was human before it was published. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think Melville sort of has this um, reputation for being sort of an intellectual writer. Yeah. I'm well, just trying to milk out more more witty phrases for potential episode titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'll find plenty when you start describing the actual plot of Billy Budd to us. Do you want to do that now or do yes. we have more background? No, no, no. Let's get into it. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, there's not a ton of stuff that happens here. This isn't, you know, obviously this is a novella. It's not on an epic scale the way that uh, Moby Dick is. Uh, so what, B- Billy Budd is a handsome sailor, which Melville explains to us is not just a descriptor, but a specific kind of sailor who's possessed of like a natural physical charisma that causes other sailors to gravitate around them. And uh, in D&D parlance, Billy Budd has a very high charisma and high wisdom, but probably a low intelligence. And he's originally just on a merchant ship. Right. Called the Rights of Man. Yes. And <laughs> Not heavy handed at all, Melville. There's a lot of that in this. <laughs> we'll get to it. There, uh, there's another ship name that's like, ooh, okay, Melville. Maybe take another pass on that one. Uh, 
And he is press ganged or impressed. Is press gang only when you're a criminal? I think he's impressed because I think what's happening is is the war. Is it during a war? That, or or there could, there's tension between France and England, I right. think. I don't think there's a full-on war yet. But there's been war and there's been mutiny. So there's a very tense, somber atmosphere over the novel. Like, Melville really wants us to understand that, like, at this point, the sea around Europe is kind of a powder keg. And people have to be very careful and very cautious in their dealings at sea. Maybe more, like, inscripted. Well, impressed is the word they use. I was going to say press ganged, and then I corrected myself, because I think press gang is only when you're a criminal. Uh, So he's impressed into service on an English naval ship. Right. And Billy on the rights of man is like a, a, he's beloved and popular and he's like a peacemaker amongst the rowdy sailor men. And he leaves the ship. You sailors. You don't have to specifically say they're men. They're men. They're very manly. That's important to Melville. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And he's uh, taken to the Navy. He says goodbye rights of man as he's leaving the ship. Or farewell rights of man or something like that. Uh, And he's, uh, you know, pretty much in the same position of being popular and beloved on the naval ship. Do you remember what the name of the naval ship is? The Bella Potent? It says, Billy Budd is impressed into service aboard the HMS Bella Potent in the year 1797 with the Royal Navy. Okay. And then also I think it's important to note, to sort of interrupt the the narrative at the time that he's impressed into service there's a spate of high profile mutinies yes yeah. uh and so he's uh he's popular on the ship but he is not popular with one very specific guy the man at arms known as claggart or jimmy legs who takes an instinctual and seemingly unexplainable dislike to billy bud and Plots against him. At one point, he, like, tries to trick Billy into, like, stealing so he can get rid of him. And Billy won't do it, partially because he's too virtuous and partially because he's deeply confused by the event that's happening. Yeah, I think he doesn't quite understand what he did. He doesn't understand why Claggart would dislike him at all. What he did to offend Claggart in such a monumental way. And Claggart is, like, this cantankerous mercurial figure he has a mysterious past he joined the navy at an old er age than is usual and people suspect that he might have been a criminal and eventually clagger gets so fed up with billy being so being, you know it's a real stupid sexy flanders situation <laughs> and he invents a charge of mutiny against him and tells on him to the captain and the captain doesn't believe this because it's not true. And but they have to be so careful about mutiny because of this situation at sea. So that he calls Billy and Claggart into their his office, but Billy has like a stutter that is worsened under stress. And so when he's facing these trumped up charges from Claggart, he can't get his words out and becomes frustrated and strikes Claggart in the head, killing him with one punch. Felled by an angel of God, but the angel must be hanged, is what the medic says when he comes in to check on Claggart's body. And despite no one wanting to do it and no one thinking that Billy is actually guilty of mutiny, but because he did kill Claggart, they have to uh, convene a drumhead court-martial 
And at the end, they find him guilty. And again, despite no one wanting to do it, but hamstrung by the letter of the law, they hang Billy from the mast. And he is dead. And then the next chapter is just says that Claggart died fighting a French ship, which is called the Atheist. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff about the French Revolution and like the death of spiritualism in regards to the uh, the sort of more rational uh, leanings of the French revolutionaries. And then uh, while he's dying, Captain Veer, I'm, I somebody said Claggart, but I meant Veer. Captain Veer is the one who dies. He um, says Billy Bud's name. And then we get a newspaper clipping, which is an account of the events on the Bella Points. And it says that Billy Stat was actually a mutineer. He was a suspicious foreign-born character. And he stabbed Claggart, who was a brave English serviceman, to death. And then the last chapter is one of the sailors writing a ballad of- about Billy called Billy on the Darbies. Of the Darbies. Yeah, and I think that's actually the original name of the story that Melville had given it. And Billy of the Darbies. That Billy is a figure who is... It's just about Billy being resigned to his death and the injustice of it. Uh, and then he dies. And it's basically like a sea shanty about a sailor who's condemned to death. Yeah, I think that... I mean, it's important to note that Billy... It's almost... Billy is popular, he's well-liked, um, the other crew members respect him, and I think Claggard is, I guess he's almost like a classic sort of sociopath. He has decided that, I don't know if he's envious of Billy Bud or something had happened, or there's something that happens personally to Claggart, which we're not privy to, that turns him against this well-meaning, mild-mannered character yeah there's there's some speculation it's an interesting thing where the narrator is not fully omniscient like the narrator cops to not really understanding clagger and there's some suspicion that maybe something happened before between them that billy doesn't remember i think that the easiest read on it is that clagger is is jealous i think clagger in my mind is do you remember when we were doing, uh, uh, what is it, Goodbye My Brother or Farewell My Brother by John Cheever? Right. Apparently I can't get goodbye and farewell uh, straight in my head in this episode. But we were doing that and I was talking like, oh, you know, it, it, you encounter these older works where there are these like deep philosophical and poetic explorations of these events that the writers are struggling to understand. But... These kinds of things become more commonplace and, you know, talked about as time goes on. And these events that puzzled these creators seem more mundane to us. So, like, when we were reading Goodbye, My Brother, I was like, oh, you know, the the guy is supposed to be, like, this, like, enigmatic character. Why is he so unhappy and dissatisfied? And why does he hit his brother with that root? And I was like, he has depression. This is a story about a guy who has depression. Uh I feel like with this, it's like, Claggart is a, he's a middle manager. And he's exactly the kind of scumbag that a lot of middle managers are because he's in proximity to power constantly. He's right there. You know, he's, he's pretty close to the level of authority of the captain, but he's never going to have the level of authority of the captain. He has no way to achieve it. I mean, partially because he's not a, uh, nobleman and he's not, uh, he's, you know, presumably an impressed man like Billy is. 
and he sees Billy, who is naturally likable and has, in an unofficial capacity, exactly as much authority and respect as Claggart has with almost no work, and he's deeply jealous and threatened by him and attempts to remove him from the situation through any means necessary. I think you're right because Billy Budd is a low-level sailor, but yet the captain knows all about him. Yeah. And I think that's exactly one of the things. And then the captain even makes a point of saying that Billy Budd is so good looking, he must be from some kind of upper class. I guess he calls him a blow by, which is what he refers to him as. Mm -hmm. Like, meaning like he was bred from like um, high society stock. So even though he's a lowly level sailor he still has that sort of legacy of where he could be something more I but i think what's happening here is and i kind of like same thing with the cheever novel this is a sort of a closed society they're on mm -hmm. a ship and even though they're away from the sort of hierarchy of normalized society they still have a social structure which is important to them as sailors. And I think Claggard, who feels entitled, he's an older man. And even though he hasn't been in the Navy as long as Billy Budd, he feels that as an older man with other experience, he's entitled to more. He sounds a lot like someone, you know, the type of person that we're dealing with a lot in society right now. He feels that he's being dismissed and Billy Budd is getting a lot of attention for just being young and good looking and well liked. And he doesn't like that. And I think this whole phobia of like the mutiny, which is something that all the captains are afraid of because it leads to sort of chaos within that closed society. And I think Claggard, this is why I think he's a sociopath. He knows exactly what to say to the captain to trigger that fear response in him and to turn him against Billy Budd. Yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, the story could be over in five pages if the captain just says, I don't believe you, Claggart. You know, yeah. put you in whatever they call ship jail. The brig. The brig. Because you're, you know, you're starting some trouble. Yeah, but he, Claggart's plot exposes that the captain is ultimately powerless, too. And in a way, I think Melville's kind of getting at the idea that, like, everyone is powerless. We, we're all hamstrung by... Uh, the rules and rights of society. I mean, he presents this situation in which, like, the the British naval law is basically a malevolent AI that has enslaved everyone. It's a malevolent AI that was constructed by a bunch of, you know, inbred malaria-stricken Brits. But it's like, they are powerless against it and are forced to put Billy to death even though none of them wants to and all of their better judgment says that it's a bad idea. But honestly after, first of all let's look at this weird plot point where Billy Budd is so powerful he literally punches a man to death. In a single punch. In a single punch. But I mean technically if the captain oh. wanted to because no one was there he, he, could, he yeah. could have just said Claggart's gone and then moved on. Or he could have said that Claggart that he just had was talking to them. He could have lied and said, ah, I was just having a meeting with them. And Claggart went into a rage and attacked Billy and Billy defended himself. Well, that's it. I mean, he, he technically wouldn't even really be a lie to say that Bill, he killed him in self-defense. I mean, Claggart's plan, as if, if it had played out to his liking, which it kind of does, except for the 
significant detail that he died before it was finished, much like Melville, uh, <laughs> it would have resulted in Billy's death anyway. Like, he was still trying to kill Billy just with words. And then I think that also gets at the difference between Billy and Clagger, where it's Clagger's ultimate weapon is lies and the law and subterfuge, and Billy's ultimate weapon is his pure, noble, physical fist. <laughs> I think... Ultimately, the captain is responsible for two deaths. He's responsible for Claggart's death because he did not defuse that situation quickly Mm -hmm. enough so that Billy Bud was prone to his Popeye fist (laughs) where he just killed that man with one blow. But then also because of that, he was then kind of forced, his hands were forced because he's this morally upright, ideological captain who knew that there was only one thing to do, which was to try Billy Bud and then hang him. Yeah. I do want to say this to the killing with one punch thing. This was an uh, older 19th century British sailor that he punched. I mean, this is a guy that's been eating like salt pork and limes and rum (laughs) for like the last 30 years. So he had a a, a glass jaw and it just collapsed. Yeah, I don't I don't think it would have been terribly hard to kill that guy with a single blow. But I mean, what what do you think this what do you think the relationship between Claggart and Billy Budd really was? I mean, I I think that, um, well, I think there's a couple ways. I think there's the jealousy thing. I mean, I think there's the frustrated middle manager thing he's dwight from the office and he's never going to get the power that he wants i think there's also the i mean billy is pretty obviously a christ figure he's compared to divinity a lot directly to apollo uh you know a dying man says his name he his trial and execution mirrors the trial and execution of christ a lot there's they both deal with that like no one wants to do this and they're stuck because of the system and Pontius Pilate and Captain Devere essentially wash their hands and let the system take responsibility for killing this guy. And then I think the end of the novel in a way kind of mirrors the structure of the Gospels where it's like here are these different versions of the story with different details that present a different three different characterizations of Billy. And so I think there's the idea that like well, Claggart represents like base and a venal humanity unable to comprehend proximity to the divine and the pure and thus needs to destroy it. Yeah, I think so. I kind of was like, my first thought was, was this was sort of a social comment about capital punishment. Yes, I think that's part of it. I do want to say another thing. I just, I just really, Claire's the French. Yeah, it could be. And Billy is, is the, he's the French, he's rationality, he's driving out the religious... The atheist kills uh, Captain Veer. I mean, I mean, there's a way. I think you can read. I definitely think the capital punishment thing is valid. We should talk about it. But I think there's also a way to read Billy Budd as an allegorical story about the French Revolution or about the Enlightenment. Yeah, that's true. With Billy representing like old time uh, spirituality. Yeah. So, like originally, my first thought was that it was a novel, a social comment about capital punishment. Where the captain is sort of the judge who is above the normal law. Because the way that he handles the court-martial is really extreme and really quick. And he himself gives himself 100% of the power as the judge 
the jury and the executioner. Mm -hmm. And he does this in a rapid fire way so that a lot of the sailors are kind of confused about what's going on. Yeah. So I thought it was about that. And then I kind of thought it like maybe it was about like a comment on like anti-intellectualism where Herman Melville was considered an intellectual and he was talking this young upstart who was uneducated and even though he was charismatic, he was not um, what he would consider educated. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, maybe. Melville definitely seems to be on Billy Budd's side. He spends a lot of time rapturously describing how hot he is and how cool it must be to hang out with him. Uh, also, we uh, go back to the religious thing. We didn't even mention it. There's a, the most explicit part of the religious allegory, I think, is when Melville directly compares sailors trying to collect pieces of the mast that Billy was uh, hanged from to people trying to collect pieces of the true cross. Yeah, I, I mean, and I could see that. Billy becomes like a weird like sailor messiah. Yeah, I don't really know enough about Melville's personal life and what religion he was. I mean, I assume he was religious he's probably some sort of protestant he's from new england right but i think like the whole part about this novel is about international relationships with france it's it makes sense if you think of like billy budd as a british novel Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make as much sense if you think of billy budd as an american novel it's it's very anti-french so there was this I, I have this, I tweeted, like, last year this thing where I was like, I hate when you're reading an old novel and the writer says some shit, like, he had that certain quality that was so indicative of the Slavic sort, like, I'm supposed to know what the fuck that means. There's a lot of that in this book. The There's one point where he references phrenology. I forget exactly when he, but he says something about someone's skull ridge indicating something. I think it's the Claggarts indicates that he's intelligent or something like that. Uh, and then there's this one part where... I bookmarked it because I wanted to read it to you and ask you what you thought it meant. Uh, He's describing Billy and he says, Cast in a mold peculiar to the finest physical examples of those Englishmen in whom the Saxon strain would seem not at all to partake of any Norman or other admixture. What does that mean? He's saying that he's the least French-looking Englishman possible, right? That's That's what that means? What does it mean to look French? And then... (laughs) I don't know. Hat with a giant feather on it. <laughs> he doesn't have a twirly mustache. Uh, so yeah, so it's like there's the the anti-French sentiment of them of like Melville clearly being nervous about the ideas of the French Revolution, which is interesting as a guy who is from America, right? Where like a lot of you know built on a lot of those same ideas. But there's also this thing where it just all seems like he's straight up, like, racist against the French. Yeah, he, he he had some kind of thing, beef with the French. But I think at the time of the French Revolution, a lot of Americans supported that yeah. revolution because of the support that France had given the United States during our revolution. Yeah. So I can't really understand it. The only thing that makes me, I think that, first of all... Did Melville ever get on a ship? Did he ever go on a ship? He writes a lot about ships and sailors. I mean, this is literally the third thing that I can think of that Melville wrote about ships and sailors. I don't know. I don't know a ton about his life. Uh, 
I always assumed he did. Uh, but who's to say? But, I mean, do you have anything else to say about this sort of the plot or the symbolism of Billy Budd? I mean, we know he was very handsome, and that's important for a sailor to be well, handsome. Well, I And mean, to wear a bandana. Apparently, there's a lot of, there's at least three descriptions of jaunty bandanas being worn by these sailors, mm-hmm. which is very important to the plot point, apparently. And also, let's talk about the very beginning where he's describing this one sailor, and then that sailor has nothing to do with the story. Well, no, so it starts, well, that might be part of it being unfinished. It starts <laughs> with Melville saying that the handsome sailor is a thing. Capital H, capital S. Handsome sailor. There's a specific kind of sailor who's very charismatic, and the other sailors gather around him, and there's only, several times he compares the adoration that the other sailors have for the handsome sailor to religion. He okay. he does it with Billy Budd. He does it with the, and so he describes an example of a uh, handsome sailor, which is this uh, African guy that he encounters like on the docks, uh, who's got like uh, he he lovingly describes this guy's physical appearance. I, he has a Scotch bonnet on, which is funny, um, or a Highland bonnet. That's what he calls it. He just wears it so fantastically, too. Uh, and that guy never comes up, but he he does compare him to, like, a religious idol, and he calls him a pagode at some point, which is, like, I think, like, some kind of, like, pagan object of worship. And I think that guy just is just there to set up the concept of the handsome sailor so that when Billy shows up, we we know what a handsome sailor is, and we know that this this boy, he's a handsome sailor. I can see why these uh, Highland bonnets are so highly sought after for being attractive because they're like a major plot point in the Outlander TV series they're like where the, every good-looking man has one of those on. They look like berets, right? Yeah, That's they're the, like a really long beret. Yeah, the, the hat that like a guy playing like the bagpipes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that's a site that I'm, I said that like it's a thing that you see, but it's like, it's important context is that we live in Philadelphia, so it's like, you know. And cop dies, there's a guy walking around down the street with a bagpipes playing well, for him. Well, I think sort of when I was doing some research on this novel, I was surprised when we talked about this before the podcast that Herman Melville as a writer is listed as being part of the romantic literary movement. See, I was, I went to school. <laughs> And for some reason, a lot of my high school English program dealt with ro- the romanticism. I guess because it's like really one of the first American literary movements. I mean, not that romanticism is a fully American thing, but there is like that particular strain of it where it's like Hawthorne and Melville. And they were like the two big examples that were always given of like, these are romanticist authors and we had to read the scarlet letter and young goodman brown a billion times when i was in high school so i have always kind of associated him with that movement what is it that surprised you well i just thought that you know he really wasn't as i mean don't get me wrong he is definitely like he really embraces that sort of purple prose highly intellectual um adjectives used profusely everything is described in a way that is like 
it, it's the weirdest way to describe something. So when you're reading the description, you're kind of like, is he talking about a person or a horse? You, you really don't know. So that to me, that's like, yeah, that's romantic writing. But I think like he seems to sort of embrace the sort of perception of like um, the height of masculine, like, the, you know, the perfect example of masculinity. Like Moby Dick is about sort of like this male struggle and Billy Budd is about like these male relationships. And I think like Herman Melville seems extremely masculine in my mind. Yeah. But in, when I think about romanticism, the way I've always understood it is like, um, it's got, it's very individualistic. There's like, it's dripping with emotion and meaning. Everything is suffused with this like higher spiritual significance. And I think that, is totally an explanation. Like, that is a description of Melville's work. Like, and I imagine, you know, I, I, what I'm imagining, when I'm reading his prose and I'm picturing it in my head, I'm seeing, like, a romanticist painting with, like, big and sprays right. of ocean water and, like, one guy, you know, standing at the, you know, on the ship above, below the, like, incomprehensible majesty of the sun and the sea. Yeah, I could definitely see that. This reminded, I mean, this storyline was very, was similar, but a lot of it reminded me of back when I was reading, I think it was the National, no, the Pulitzer, um, where Joseph Conrad, his novel, Lord Jim, Mm -hmm. which was published in 1899. So it was published before um, people knew about Billy Budd, but it's the same kind of thing. Lord Jim is this sort of charismatic sailor of the sea who accidentally always comes up on top. There's a point where a ship is sinking and he abandons the ship and he's sort of vilified, but then he's able to turn it around to make himself into be a hero. And I kind of was thinking that there's like this whole notion of these sort of personalities that are prone to become sailors because sailing, the sailing life has a personality type that fits it perfectly. I mean, that's definitely a thing that Melville is into that there's a specific type of guy that becomes a sailor and sailors are a specific type of way. I mean, you can, it's interesting to think of this novel almost as a counterpoint to our favorite literary genre, the picaresque, because Billy really is just like an ounce of guile away from being a picaresque hero. You could easily read. I can imagine a picaresque novel where the entirety of Billy Budd is like the opening few chapters and he weasels his way out of execution and, like, ends up getting into hijinks on the high seas. But Billy doesn't have the ingenuity or the guile, so the system just destroys him. He doesn't have it in him to be a rogue. But I think there's a limited shelf life for a writer like Herman Melville. Because if you think well, of, you like, mean? there's only a certain amount of time where it, it's current events that people are swashbuckling sailors. Sure. So, like, you know, like... If but, anyone writes a novel like this now, it's a historical novel. But I disagree because I think the, yes, sailing is important. The sea is important. But if you look at Melville's other works, like what I think is his best work, Bartleby the Scrivener, what Melville's actually interested in, I think more so than the sea and sailors, is workplace relations. <laughs> Every Melville story is about a workplace and is about workplace disputes and personality clashes and 
like the power dynamics of being employed by someone or employing someone. That's what makes it hard to sort of fit into. Well, I guess that makes sense because if romanticism is about relationships, then Melville's work is also about relationships. It's just not about romantic relationships. Yeah, but it's and it's also like the individualist thing I said. Like it's about he he's interested in the the system of power of like this workplace of the ship as as an enclosed workplace of the office in the case of Bartleby but he's not interested in just examining the system he's interested in what it means for the individual who's entrenched in that system i think that makes sense because more pe- people are more likely to have multiple relationships like this mm-hmm. like a workplace relationship and less romantic relationships mhm so i think it actually could be more relatable to people but I don't know. Part of what puts me off about Melville is the language that he uses is so exclusive. I mean, not just the technical parts that are about sailing, Mm -hmm. but like he uses words that are like, I mean, even for the time period that he was writing, some of these words probably are not mainstream. Yeah, you you, you do kind of need a dictionary sometimes. I don't think it's, it's as bad as other writers who are like, I don't, who are intentionally trying to be purple words. I think Melville was just like, this was the kind of guy that he was. Uh, he was just a really smart guy who loved boats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I could see that it doesn't. I, it doesn't bother me so much. But I, I totally don't begrudge anyone for being put off by his writing style. Uh, can I say my other hot take that I had while I was reading this? Yeah. Not necessarily a hot take, but the other take. So I'm reading this this novel, this novella, and like I'm in this like an eight page tangent he goes on at one point where he's talking about Claggers mentality and then he goes off and he's talking about like what it means for like a judge to do his job and I think there's like another like a small story or like anecdote lodged in there too and I feel like the major difference between Herman Melville and a writer like David Foster Wallace who we actually you brought up earlier is Melville just didn't put his tangents and footnotes yeah, so I guess like um, I could see this being sort of the Melville being the type of writer that a meta fiction writer would appreciate. Yeah, because I think a lot of it also for Melville, it's the craft of writing, which I think is why he was so careful and not as prolific as some of the other. Because if Herman Melville was just an action adventure story writer, and I know you like Jack London, but yeah. like. Jack London was very prolific mm-hmm. because he had a formula and he like rode that formula. Melville is much more um, concerned about writing the craft of the writing and less about the action and movement of the story. He's he's also very clear about like his narrators are identifiable. Like this one, it's pretty clear that if the narrator isn't him, it's somebody close to him and he j- will just like kind of share personal philosophical musings directly in the text and you get the same thing in Moby Dick even though it's you know couched in it being a different guy it's still like it's not a god laying down an objective story to you it, it is someone talking to you and they're going to diverge and and recur and loop back around into their points the way that a actual storyteller would in person. What do you think 
it is about Melville's body of work that makes him so beloved. Why is he still, um, you know, viable as a writer and still talked about and still read today? I mean, I just, well, I mean, like, his glib answer is he's very good. Uh, but I think it's like, it's like I was saying, I think he hits on these, like, very real relationships that people develop and and witness in the world. Like, I, I think it's... It's too... I was being jokey about, like, oh, Claggart is Dwight from The Office. He's a middle manager. Well, I think it's really to the novel's credit that this... I feel like I know exactly the person that this uh, 19th century British sailor was here today in 2019, you know, Philadelphia. I think it's interesting because, like, we talked a lot about, in as a common theme on the podcast where we talk about famous works of literature and the characters that come out of those works and how sometimes the characters themselves become more important than the works. Sure, I mean... But I think, like, for Melville, like, speaking specifically of Moby Dick, like, Captain Ahab and Moby Dick as a character are very well known and there are many sort of manifestations of movies and things like that and different variations of the books, you know, you... When you were little, you had a comic book that was like Moby Dick. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that you don't see... you. Everyone knows Moby Dick. Everyone knows the plot of Moby Dick. Even if you haven't read it, you still know the plot of it. But I think what's interesting is those characters never come out of that story. You don't see like a Captain Ahab historical fiction or a reimagining of Moby Dick in a different way. I think you, you see... You don't see it directly. It's like you don't really get like Captain Ahab's not in Penny Dreadful. As right, far as he's I know. not going to solve a murder mystery. But you get lots of like, you know, you watch Jaws and you're like, oh, Quint is like a heroic working class take on Captain Ahab. Like, right. and it's like, oh, you, you know, you, um, even like the Predator. You know, you watch that and you're like, okay, like there's there's the DNA of Moby Dick in this, and the characters are are riffed on more than they're directly. Reproduced, and I think that speaks to how kind of elemental they are. Um, so I want to say two things. One, Claggart is kind of, uh, he's kind of a riff on Ahab within the story. He's like obsessive and like maniacal in the way that Ahab is, except he doesn't have this, uh, m- massive symbol of like nature and the anger of God to direct his thing against. He, it's just a handsome boy. That he's mad at. <laughs> um, and I also think part of the, the the continuing appeal of Melville is, like, he has an eye for these very powerful, very romantic images. The, the white whale and the, the, you know, the deranged captain with the harpoon is, like, powerful just as an image on its own. And I think even in Billy Budd, which I think no one would argue isn't a lesser work, the image of Billy hanging from the mast... This, like, beautiful, radiant boy co-signed to this senseless, perfunctory death, like, swinging from the masthead like a salt-soaked messiah is, like, really powerful and compelling. You can imagine the painting, and it's a fucking great painting. I think it's telling, too, that the, the other sailors are more upset about Billy Budd's death than they are about Claggart's, which, in any other instance... The person who murdered someone yeah. 
would not be mourned more than the person who was murdered. And he directly comments, like I was saying about him, his narrator being this sort of like active conversational character, he directly comments on that irony in the text. Uh, yeah, and in a way, the reaction to Billy and Claggart's death prove the Claggart's suspicions and envies correct. Right, exactly. And in a way, he, he writes his own... You know, he, he creates the prophecy that kills himself. Do we have anything else to say? I think that's it. I mean, the novel, it, it's short and it's well-written. And I think it sort of really sums up sort of what Melville was thinking about, you know, the ideas of this sort of societal roles. I I kind of had this idea that this could have been, even in his mind, a part of Moby Dick. Like, this could have been a subplot that was happening on the ship. Yeah. I do think that this kind of needs the the naval thing, though, for the um, for the ending where it's like, oh, here, all these rules and strictures and obligations force us to kill Billy even though we don't want to. I, don't, I think that would be less likely to happen on a commercial whaling ship. I was just thinking about Mutiny on the Bounty. And it turns out that that was published in 1932. So mm-hmm. that probably more likely was influenced by um, Melville and his body of work than... Yeah. So. But who would have thought that mutinies were such a touchstone subject matter that really sort of inflamed the whole entire naval community? I mean, yeah. handsome soldiers, handsome sailors, and mutinies are very important discussion points for sailors yeah well you mean you don't want to have a mutiny on your hands <laughs> nor do you want to have a truly charismatic handsome boy disrupting the work of your ship or maybe the problem is the jealous old man you know maybe he can just it's okay to just be handsome <laughs> <laughs> melville had the courage to stand up and say it's okay to be hot do you think <laughs> even that when that you're a sailor offends you more because you're a millennial uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. What do you make of the, 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 the weird, like, two conflicting versions of visions of Billy we get at the end of the novel? I think that's sort of, that's sort of like, so the society is closed and what happens on the ship is sort of insular. And then what happens is once the ship is docked and people go out and the information gets spread around, it's almost like this sort of oral history that's telling the story of what happened to Billy Budd. But then there's that also that sort of conversion of when the facts become almost like the mythology. Mm -hmm. And I think that fits in more with the religious theme that you were talking about. Because as the story is spread around and as it grows, Billy becomes more of a Christ figure. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what this is implying because it goes from being like, oh man, something crazy happened at work today mm-hmm. to being like this guy that I knew, my friend had this, you know, worked on a ship with this guy and this guy and this happened. And then almost, and then it becomes this sort of like, like a, like a Beowulf. He, you know, he writes this majestic poem to celebrate the life of Billy Budd. And that's how it, it ends. It's almost like he's moved from being like, an actual human to being sort of like this mythological creature. Yeah. And I think that's another example of this, this weird thing we've hit upon in this episode of like Melville's influence on postmodernism, 
because these like at the end of his novel he's really getting at the idea that like there is no objective truth yeah and i think it's interesting that a man who's pretty much known for being nothing has become so i mean in a way billy is extremely important in the subculture of sailing even Mm -hmm. amongst people who never knew him yeah and i think that's what the poem sort of suggests was that like even people who were never in contact with billy now have this sort of mythological storytelling where he's become this sort of very important character who stood for the rights of sailors and stood up against this evil sociopath and punched him to death (laughs) and then i feel like the captain, you know, the sad, like, decline of the captain going from this morally, uh, an intellectually open and fair man to sort of being demoralized and ended up dying, like, pretty much, you know, in this sort of shameful kind of way where he ends up crying and screaming as he's dying. Yeah, what do you, what do you, what do you make of him saying Billy Budd's name at the end? Because the narrator seems to suggest, like, this is not a cry of, like, grief or regret. And I wonder if it's maybe supposed to be that, like, he is seeing Christ in the form of Billy Budd as he passes into the afterlife. Is this supposed to be Billy giving him, like, grace and forgiveness at the end of his life from beyond the grave? Well, if Billy Budd is supposed to be a Christ figure, then is Clagger Pontius Pilate? Devere is Pontius Pilate. Right, and I think he's sort of having this... Maybe he's having a deathbed conversion. But I also think that he knew that whatever made Billy Budd special and whatever inflamed Claggart against him would mm-hmm. be a recurring thing. So the best thing to do for his society, for his ship, is to get rid of that sort of the element that's going to keep sparking multiple controversies. So he, that's why I think he quickly... Became He did that sort of specialized, unless you're really interested in naval history, you don't even know what it is, some kind of drum roll. Drum head court martial? I don't know what that means either. They just said the term and it stuck in my head. So he knew he had to quickly dispatch Billy Budd. Mm -hmm. Because there was no way to say, get off the ship, you're too good looking. You're too hot. You're going to start a union at some point. Stupid sexy Billy, get off my (laughs) ship. He He had to neutralize... But I think what he didn't understand was just like the story of Jesus Christ, disposing of the physical form of Jesus Christ did not neutralize the the spread of Christianity. And the same thing with like Billy Budd, neutralizing Billy Budd did not s- stop the spread of this sort of um, mythology of this handsome sailor. and every- Because I'm sure everybody else who was thinking about it was like, I'm a handsome sailor too, yeah. so this is very relevant to me. Mm-hmm. I got a bandana jauntily on the side. I got a yeah. Highland bonnet. I got everything I, like, I need. I was like, maybe I should start wearing a bandana. <laughs> <laughs> I like... I- <laughs> See, if that was written today, instead of talking about bandanas, they would be talking about beard lengths and fullness mm. of male beards. Yeah. As like a symbol of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and Billy would be the the poor, the poor noble twink, <laughs> <laughs> destroyed by uh, the you know the middle manager at the startup he's working at, which really is the uh, sailing ship no of one, the modern day. No one acknowledges that he has been coding since <laughs> the you know the late nineties. So, uh, <laughs> Clackard is Gen X. 
He's wearing his Faith No More shirt when he kills Billy. That is is 100% a Jet X thing is to be like petty and bitchy and like say snarky things about Billy to other people. And then once he gets back and the captain's like, did you say this? He's like, "Mm, I might have, I might not have. And then, but I don't know if a millennial would just punch a Gen X, maybe like in some kind of like weird, like visualization of like what they want to happen. Yeah. They would just punch out the Gen X guy. She's <laughs> just, um, oh, the other thing I want to talk about with this is in the same way I was like, they don't quite have this, like in the same way that Goodbye My Brother is like, we don't fully understand what depression is. So, like, what's this mysterious thing that's afflicting him? This has the same thing with passive aggression. Right. Claggart is passive aggressive to a T. He's smiley and nice to Billy's face, but he's clearly fucking with him. There's that genuinely pretty funny part where Billy spills soup on the deck (laughs) and Claggart's smiling and he's like, great job, Billy. (laughs) And Billy's like, see, he likes me. And it's like, no, he doesn't like you, Billy. Uh so Billy has that participation trophy that drives him insane every time Claggart sees it. He got a gold medal for trying at being a bestseller. So that's kind of what makes him mad. But it's really interesting to have see a vision of like that concept hasn't been disseminated through culture and we haven't had like a million comedy premises about the passive aggressive coworker. So when you you know, Melville encounters it in the world, he's like what an interesting figure. I shall write a novel about him. <laughs> it must be nice. That's what uh, Claggart's... That's mo- his motto. It must be nice. To whoever has been eating my... <laughs> drinking my grog from the workplace barrel, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. My mother made me this salt tack. <laughs> but if you need it more than I do, please help yourself. Uh, so do we have anything else to say about Billy Bud? Uh, No. I really liked. It. I, you couldn't tell from uh, the conversation. I I love this novella. I liked it the way I love a de- good December song. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Melville a lot. I like this. Like I said, I don't think this is one of his best works, but I still think it's it's really good and it's really interesting in the context of his other stuff and in the broader context of writing history, literary history. Uh, and we should definitely at some point do Bartleby. I think that would be a good episode. Yeah, I'm surprised when you were thinking Melville, you picked this one. I think it's just because I've I've read Bartleby like a hundred times. Okay. Um, I've read this one time before. Uh, so, uh, do we want to talk about anything else? Have you been reading anything you want to bring up? Well, I just wanted to. It has nothing similar to Melville, but I would just. Oh, there is also something we do need to talk about because the Hugo Awards happened. Oh, that's right. But first, let me give a shout out for this book that I had read. It's called The Gods of Jade and Shadow, and it's by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, and it was just published this year. And it is a magical realist novel. You know we love that on here. Yeah, and it deals with Mayan mythology. That sounds cool. Which, it's very interesting. It's a story of a young woman who inadvertently opens up a chest she finds in her grandfather's house that has the bones of the Mayan god of death and then she resuscitates him by making by providing him with some of her blood she accidentally pricks her finger on his bones and he comes back to life and it turns out that 
this Mayan god of death is in a battle that's been an internal battle with his brother where they have been almost in a Cain and Abel way killing each other over and over again to become the king of the underworld. And it's set in the 1920s and this woman takes up with the god because she has one of his bone chips in her finger and she has to help him or both they have a symbiotic relationship and both of them will die. So there's this sort of quest that they go on to um, retrieve his missing body parts and then f- and turn him into the god so he can battle his brother. And it's a really interesting sort of take on like mythology and fairy tales as well as like really successfully and quite like sort of delicately incorporating the concept of magical realism into sort of fantasy, which I thought was really nice. But the author, this is the first book that I had written that she had. You've read. I've read. Um, she is well known for her debut novel, Single, Signal to Noise, which yeah. is also set in Mexico. And it's about, it's based on her family's interest in radio stations. I've read that one. That one's really good. Yeah. And it was really one of those sort of best sci-fi novels of 2015. And I thought it was interesting too, which I thought you might find interesting, is that she works for a publishing firm that specializes in new weird science fiction called the Innsmouth Free Press. Mm -hmm. So I really like the novel. I thought it was very interesting. I kind of like that sort of... um, it's like that fringe sort of genre of fantasy that's based specifically on like mythology and fairy tales. And also non-Western stuff, which is oh, yeah. disappointingly rare in fantasy even today. I mean, we're starting to see stuff move out of that like, you know, European fairy tale, medieval, Lord of the Rings mold. Uh, City of Brass is a really good one that I would recommend to people that deals with a lot of like, um, you know, Middle Eastern and Muslim concepts i thought was interesting about this because a lot of it deals with the perceptions of a single woman in this sort of latin culture you know where where it's sort of not it's a patriarchal society and within that society she's sort of restricted in what she can do and then taking up with this god of death actually frees her to be more independent and to experience life on her own terms. And I think that's the positive message from this novel. It's very well written. It's very sophisticated. The The world is very lush. It talks like it's about the 1920s and sort of the culture at the time. It's very well done. I highly recommend that. Uh, cool. I want to um, I want to talk about the thing I've been reading and then we can talk about the Hugo Award winners. Okay. Uh, this is not a, uh, not a novel. I have been reading a, uh, so Hoopla is a nice resource that the free library provides. Uh, it's like a digital rental service and your, if your library system is hooked into it, then you get like a certain amount. I think it's like four I think uh, it's rentals not- per month. And they have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of good stuff on there. They have almost all of the Doctor Who audio dramas. If that's something you're into, they're secretly better than the show. Uh, But And they have a lot of comics, but I didn't realize until recently that hiding outside of the comics category, I think, on Hoopla, I think that was why I hadn't seen it, is a whole selection of stuff published by Cinebooks, who publish uh, translations of European comics. And so I've been reading a bunch of those, and the 
one of them that's been really I've really been digging is this series called Thorgal, with T H O R G A L. It's a hard, a little hard to describe. I would say on the surface, what it appears to be is a fantasy adventure series about uh, a Viking. It's by written by uh, Jean van Ham and drawn by Gregors Rosinski. G R Z E G O R Z <laughs> Rosinski. Um, Jean van Ham is uh, he's also the guy who wrote Thirteen, which is like a like a thriller series. It was adapted into a video game for the PlayStation that I played a ton of. Earth of the PlayStation 2 that I played a ton of back in the day. And so Thorgal opens, the, the at least the, the American published version. I think these the stories that opens with are sort of prequel ones that were published later in Belgium. But the Cinebooks Volume 1 opens with Thorgal's origin story, which it starts with a bunch of Vikings on an unsuccessful expedition in a storm. A mutiny <laughs> is about to happen um, where one of them... Harold the Mad uh, insists that they make a sacrifice to Odin or to the gods to get their way out of this storm. And the captain, who's their leader, uh, says that they should not do that because it's barbaric. And then a light appears on the horizon that guides them to shore. And thankfully, because uh, originally Harold's plan is to sacrifice the captain. That, that he, is, he wants to use the ritual as a cover for his mutiny. This light that guides them to shore saves uh, the Vikings and also saves their leader from being killed. And the light turns out to be uh, emitted from the top of a space pod (laughs) floating in the water, which they open and find a baby. Of course. And the baby, they name the baby Thorgal Agnerson, which means Gift of Thor, Son of the Sea Giant. And that's Thorgal. <laughs> he um, goes on adventures. It turns out he is the he goes on a pilgrimage at one point and meets his grandfather and learns that he is the descendant of Atlantean astronauts, uh, and he may or may not have psychic powers. And it blends sci-fi and fantasy together, but it does an interesting thing where I the, the books are originally from the 70s. And I think through modern eyes, one would assume that the trick would be all of these things that look like mythology and fantasy are actually uh, people's interpretations of sci-fi concepts. And it's all aliens and robots and psychics and stuff. But it's not. There's clear... like The Norse gods do actually exist in this setting. The second story in the volume is Thorgal going on an otherworldly adventure to help the king of the dwarves... Save his kingdom from the world serpent. Interesting. Uh, the art is like really beautiful, very detailed and painterly. There's a lot of really good like panel to panel storytelling. The second volume has this like epic story where Thorgal is like falsely accused of working with a traitor to this nearby king and he's imprisoned on a slave galley and he breaks free and returns to his home village, but it's been burnt to the ground and he has a it ends with him having a bow and arrow versus crossbow fight against the villain of the story. And there's this great sequence of, like, the panels are just, like, seconds apart from each other as Thorol walks through the burning village, 
with his bow and arrow and handily defeats the uh, the bad guy by firing two arrows at once. Because the crossbow is so much faster than his bow, but he fires two arrows and one hits the crossbow bolt in midair and the second one uh, shoots the bad guy through the heart. And uh, I, if that sounds interesting to you, I'd highly recommend people check out Thoracle. That does sound interesting. Uh, is the complete run on... Uh, I, m- at least most of it is. There's a ton on there. Cool. I've only read the first couple of volumes because you only get four uh, rentals a month. So let's talk let's about say, the Hugo yeah, Awards. Yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about the Hugo Awards. We were almost exclusively wrong about our predictions. Yes, we were. But surprisingly, and, and very much glad that I was surprised, um, there were a lot of representative by non-male yeah. writers, which I think is is really nice. Um, the only Hugo Award winner that I had read was the novella Artificial Condition. I, I did read Martha Wells' Murder by. I finished the entire series, so I did read the four novellas for that. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, that one uh, for best novel, the winner was Cal- the Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cole, which I haven't read. Uh, I think my prediction was that Revenant Gun was going to win, which I was wrong about. We were rooting for space opera. Yes, but I kind of I felt like I I think her time will come. I mm-hmm. think she will either she will create a body of work that in itself is representative of being Hugo Award winning. Or she will have that novel that finally gets her that. I mean, I think Space Opera is a great novel. I really mm-hmm. did enjoy that. So, yeah, best novelette was if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, which I've never, I have not read. I don't think I read any. Oh no, I read the only harmless great thing, which was pretty good. That's a very weird story about like the Radium Girls and Topsy the Elephant. I think what's interesting about the Hugo Awards is the Hugo Award is really open to non-traditional publishing and making sure, like, because, I mean, you could have a blog post that wins, like this was from a blog. You can have an entire archive of a body of fan fiction that can win a Hugo Award. And I think that's really sort of, it's more progressive in this sort of culture of alternative publications. I mean, the Hugo Award acknowledges, like, fan contributions and things like podcasts and fanzines. And I think that's really smart and open-minded and avant-garde compared to some of the awards. I couldn't, I I don't know when we'll ever see like a blog series win like a national book award, but because I think they're more focused on sort of traditional concept of publishing. And I think that the Hugo Award, I guess maybe because science fiction and fantasy are more, um, progressive in a lot of ways like they embrace alternative formats and different types of like fringe genres in the sort of all-encompassing science fiction genre and I think that's smart and inclusive and celebrates the sort of nature and culture of like a community that loves a type of genre yeah no I, I totally agree with that uh, best short story was Witch's Guide to Escape, a Practical Pendulum of Portal Fantasies. I love the title. I haven't read it, but that's the kind of book that I would read that kind of complicated extended title and be like, that's something I want to read. Uh, yeah, I've read that one. Portal Fantasy is interesting because that's like, I don't know when that term originates. I mean, what a portal fantasy is, is stuff like uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Like you go through a portal to another world. In Japan, it is 
called an isekai. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, that genre has completely taken over anime, or at least it did a f- a, a, for a few years there. I don't know if it's still the case. I haven't kept up with seasonal anime of two recently. Um, but the one of the um, one of the nominees for novella was Beneath the Sugar Sky by Shauna McGuire, and Shauna McGuire has a whole series. I believe that is one of them. Uh, Every Heart of Doorway is is another one in that series. That's all about. Um, basically a school for girls who have been, or a school through, uh, children and adolescents who have gone through a portal fantasy mm-hmm. and now have to readjust to the real world. That's interesting. Uh, so that like, people are, portal fantasy is, is on a lot of people's minds apparently. And I, I think probably because, uh, you know, now's a time when a lot of people are probably looking for some escapism and a fantasy of escape is, is a powerful thing. Uh, best series was Wayfarers. Oh, I was going to say, the one that I had predicted I thought was going to win short story was The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker. Oh, okay. Which is also really good. Um, but it didn't win. That's fine. Uh, yeah, best series was Wayfarers. I've never read any of that. I haven't really read any of these series except for uh, The Laundry Files by Charles Strauss, which is pretty good. I like laundry. It's like a Lovecraft spy thing. Interesting. Best related work is probably the most interesting one. Uh, of the bunch, which was given to a whole ass website, Archive of Our Own, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is a place where people upload fan fiction. Yeah, no, I think I think that's sort of that's what I was talking about being progressive because a lot of like mainstream publishing kind of sneers away from fan fiction, mm-hmm. and I think like the only way the fan fiction is sort of validated is if it's sanitized from the fan base that it is originally written for. Yeah. And I think that's a sort of kind of neutralizing trend that like what makes someone who connects so intensely with a set of characters to want to create their own stories about them, that is sort of like, that's sort of the epitome of the like positive, like nature of this collaborative, um, communities that are built on the internet and i feel like this sort of celebrates that and there's a lot of interesting stuff out there and there's a lot of interesting writers who are testing the waters for creative writing by writing fan fiction mm-hmm. yeah i think more and more we're going to see people who's who start the place that they cut their teeth is you know writing fan fiction i mean i think there's a, there's a lot of writers that are already quite successful that got their start there even beyond stuff like uh you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is sanitized, like, you know, serial numbers filed off fan fiction. Well, I think, like, even, like, acclaimed writers who write historical fiction and take not take mm-hmm. characters out of history and take characters out of other novels are, in a way, writing a type of fan fiction. I also have this sort of pet theory. There are far more uh, novels and short stories and screenplays out there that started as fan fiction than we know. I think the exception to the rule is the people that cop to the fact that their work used to be fan fiction or was a fan fiction idea that they scrubbed the copyrighted IP out of. I.e. Sherlock. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that was cool. I was really, I mean, I was rooting for the Hobbit duology uh, by Lindsay Ellis just because I, I really like her her work. As a video essayist, and I really liked that series, but uh, I mean, archive for archive of our own probably was the right pick, and it's definitely the most interesting uh, 
win there. Uh, best graphics for is Monstrous Volume Three, which I I've I haven't read. I've read a little bit of Monstrous, and it's cool. It's like a fantasy thing. Uh, Marjorie Liu and Santa Takeda. Marjorie Liu's a really good writer. Uh, she worked on um, X Men comics a few for a few years, a few years ago, and I was a big fan of her stuff there. And uh, I think there's a, a pretty good chance that if and when Monstrous wraps up, we might cover it on the podcast. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, best dramatic presentation was Into the Spider Verse. Agree. Good. Long was, form. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah, that definitely. I mean, this seemed like an intense category because there's a lot of things that I could have seen taking it. Annihilation seemed like it. Before Spider Verse came out, I think Annihilation was probably the shoe in to take the to take this category. Yeah, and it uh, really does have a sort of sci-fi history. I mean, especially with the novel by James Van. De- what, what is his name? James Vandermeer. Uh, Jeff Vandermeer. Jeff Vandermeer. James Vandermeer. <laughs> That's the <laughs> different different podcast altogether. Yeah, uh, Infinity War is nominated, which it definitely didn't deserve to win. Look, I liked Infinity War just fine, but it does not deserve a Hugo Award. No, I think this into the multiverse. Black Panther, I think, was another real competitor. So is Quiet Place. Sorry to bother you; it's never going to win. But I love that movie. That was my favorite <laughs> movie of last year. Uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it. And it's it's one of those works where you're I don't even have to do the work to uh, bring the Marxist uh, reading to the front. It's right fucking there. It's a it's a sci-fi comedy, sci-fi dark comedy about unionization. Uh, and then the Into the Spider Verse was shudly deserved. Into the Spider Verse ruled. That movie is amazing. Uh, best dramatic presentation short form was a uh, Janet parentheses S. Janet's uh, from The Good Place. The Good Place got two episodes of The Good Place got nominated, and so did two episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, that's a good episode. I think that that's a good win. The Good Place deserves some recognition. I said it especially deserves some recognition as a SSF work, because that's absolutely what it is. You know, and then we get into, like, editor, gar- uh, you know, professional artist. Charlie Vess won, where... For professional artist, our boy Charlie Vess, the guy who did uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh yeah, we've talked about his work before. He's he's great. Uh, what else was there? Uncanny won best semi pro semi pro zine, which is cool. It was another one where there were a lot of uh, seemed like there was going to be a lot of com- competition here because it was Beneath the Sky, Fireside Magazine, F I Y A H, which I um you know that's been getting a lot of hype recently, which is cool. Shimmer, Strange Horizons, who, uh, you know, I mean, they're good, but uh, they've never um, published any of the work I submitted to them, so maybe they didn't deserve a Hugo <laughs> Uncanny, who I've never actually submitted to. You know, they're, that's fine, they can win it. Uh, best fanzine was Lady Business, I didn't read any of these fanzines. I wish I read more fanzines. There's a weird... Zines are elitist discourse on Twitter recently that drove me up a fucking wall. Uh, zines rule. Make more zines. I think Lady Business is specifically about the intersection between um, literature and feminism. Cool. So I think, I mean, they have other things on there besides literature and feminism, but I think it's mostly um, an open sort of inclusive space for feminists to express themselves, which can be a pretty dangerous place to be a feminist on the internet, as you know. Yeah, people, uh, they get uh, real nasty about that kind of stuff on the internet. Yeah. 
Um, and I wholly love the name Lady Business being co co opted to be a space for feminists. Yeah, it's a good title. Yeah. They should have uh, wanted Hugo just for the title. Just for the title. <laughs> uh, best fan cast was Our Opinions Are Correct, hosted by Annalie Newitz and a uh, notable follower of Nate on Twitter, <laughs> Charlie Jane Anders. This is a very good podcast. They, a, I'm glad that they won. There's a lot of a lot of stuff was up there. Um, I think the the only other thing that I had actually read was the uh, Lewis Star Award winner for um, young adult novel. I think it's called Children of Blood and Bone by yes. Tony. Tony Adeyemi. Yeah, I read that, and that's um, we were talking about sort of culturally specific. Um, novels this is a lot of it is based on the sort of um history of african tribes mm. and i think that's interesting you take take that sort of um that history and move it into a wholly new created world yeah yeah that's the words uh yeah so uh, i think that's it do we have anything else to talk about on the podcast no i don't think so what do we we covered handsome sailors mayan mythology <laughs> Uh, Norse aliens, the Hu- and the Hugo Awards. And the Hugo Awards. So, what are we reading next? Uh, so next we've got uh, Swamp Thing Volume Five, the penultimate volume. Uh, this is a good one. Ah, they're all good ones, but this is where some wild stuff happens. It's going <laughs> to deal with the fallout of uh, what happened with Abby while he was away fighting a giant hand yeah. <laughs> in hell. Uh, Spoiler alert if you haven't listened to that. And it's going to set up the last sort of act of the series, which is my favorite part, which I'm very excited to get to that. Uh, And it's really... Is there more Constantine? There's... Yes, but not a ton. I don't think he's not as important as he was in the whole American Gothic Murder of Crows story. Is our favorite dad superhero going to be there scaling at people making unfortunate life choices? God, I hope so. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, and I, this is also really where, um, in a very literal and metaphysical way, Alan Moore really expands the idea of Swamp Thing out into something that is so much bigger than what it was initially, which is really cool. I'm excited for that. I heard that Alan Moore's beard grew four inches <laughs> just writing that ep- that those volumes because he had expanded so much that it just... Yeah. Yeah, it was just like, <laughs> just like he just willed it with his own was, mind power. It was like watching a time lapse video of a chia pet. <laughs> uh, somebody should draw some fan art of Swamp Thing with a, like a chia fro, <laughs> <laughs> or like a big chia Alan Moore beard. Yes, uh, and then uh, at, that's Vince. Can you do that? <laughs> Get on that. After uh, um, after that, we're doing a, uh, another novella. It's we're. Going to do our customary uh, horror Halloween story. Last year we did uh, The Hellbound Heart. And this year we're doing uh, Dark Harvest by Norman uh, Norman Partridge. This will be interesting. I have not read this. I haven't read it either. It sounds really cool. It's got a great cover. Uh, It's got a cover blurb quote thingy from Stephen King, who, you know, we're big fans of on this podcast. I'm also happy that I don't have to watch a terrifying movie to accompany it. So that's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, there's no no movie for this one. I think that it has been optioned, but I don't think it's come out yet. Um, when was this written? Do you have any idea? Two thousand seven. Okay, so it's it's kind of new. 
Let me actually look it up so that we we know for sure. Uh, 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 2006. Okay. Uh, and it, uh, it's a Bram Stoker Award winner. Yay. So, which is uh, maybe... Right, the Bram Stoker Awards are weird. So. <laughs> they are very weird. <laughs> so yeah, so there we go. Swamp Thing and then Dark Harvest. Uh, and that'll be your uh, October retreat. Yeah. So, um, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.